0: Let me tell you a little bit about where we're heading over the next uh, couple of weeks. And so uh, today we begin a brand new sermon series called Finding My Way. And we typically outline kind of our year in uh, anywhere from five to eight week blocks. And they kind of accompany the season of the year that it is, uh, as well as whatever our preaching content, as well as sometimes what, you know, how the stage looks and, um, you know, kind of what we're doing, even sometimes events that go along with that. And so, if you recall, uh, we just finished up a series that <clears throat> talked about the way of the cross. And the way of the cross was the idea that if John fourteen six 6 uh, reminds us that Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father except through me, we looked at uh, for seven weeks, six weeks leading up to Easter and then on Easter Sunday, what does it look like uh, for Jesus to be the way? The way of what? The way to what? The way from or out of what? And so we looked at the various like images and metaphors for salvation, life in Christ, you know, that we are adopted, that he's our substitute, that he is our you know, sacrifice, all those different things uh, that, that kind of make sense for not only what happened 2,000 years ago, of what the cross did and made available to us, but also uh, that it becomes the pattern or the way in which we live. So the way of the cross is also the way of your life, the way of my life, and how we've been wired uh, to live. So now where we kind of want to shift and we've held on to that word way, uh, what we want to think about is then how do we find our way? Now you might ask the question, if we've already talked for seven weeks, actually eight weeks including last week, about Jesus is our way and the way of the cross and that the way of the cross is the way in which we should live and sets the pattern for us. Why then should there be any question isn't finding my way more about evangelism or our life pre-Christ? And the reality is, yes and no. That once you find Jesus, once Jesus finds you, once you, you end up in a relationship with Christ, it's not as if that is the ending point, but that becomes the beginning point. And so all of us inside of our various we're, we're a fairly homogenous group here, but you think about all the Christians who have ever lived uh, in all the nations of the world in all the centuries of time, the difference is in, inside of life circumstances. Even for us, though, we would be largely the same in terms of when we live and where we live. We have different personalities, we have different struggles, we have different backgrounds, and all of us, in a way, even though we know Jesus is at the center, we are still trying to find our way, To find our way through difficulties, through circumstances, where God is leading us or where God is leading us out of. We are all attempting to to find our way. And and I want to just start off kind of with two myths. And none of us really buy into these myths, but they do kind of creep in sometimes to our understanding. The first is that if I just love Jesus, everything will be clear, simple, and easy. Now we don't believe that, but what we do believe is a version of it that says, if I believe in Jesus, and i you know, the one statement I've heard over the years is the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. So if inside of my life I keep the main thing the main thing, then everything else should fall into place. And it may or it may not. Yes, we know ultimately who we belong to and where we're heading and, and what the, the source of life is, but it doesn't mean that there aren't decisions, that there aren't things to navigate along the way. The second myth is almost on the opposite extreme, and that is, if I love Jesus, I could just do whatever I want. Maybe that doesn't mean do whatever I want in terms of, it doesn't mean I could go out and steal from somebody or kill somebody, but largely, if I love Jesus, then just go ahead and live your life. Because after all, if he's in you, you know that you're saved, you know that you're going to heaven, then after all, after that, just make the decisions the best you know how to make. That's equally dangerous. But the reality is, What God has done for us in Jesus Christ is meant to make a difference inside of us and then through us to the world. And so I have a a quick chart. I am not very artistic, so this is not really a chart as much as it is for rectangles that I put words in, but that for me, this for me is art. This is as much art as I do. Um, When we think of how we based our, our life, you know, the very foundational thing is the essential truth of scripture. That we rest our faith and our life on the foundation of God's Word. Going from that, though, you know that uh, we need to study, we need to dialogue, we need to read, we need to digest through scriptural truth in order to come up with then what are actually some of the core theological truths that govern my life. You've heard people and I've heard people that have taken one verse out out of context and done incredible damage with it. You've heard people and I've heard people that have taken one verse or one story and you're like, how in the world did they conclude that out of what they just read? And down through the history of the church, it, it means that you either need people to do this for you, and so the priest has all, all of the, you know, the, the, the kernels of truth, or it means, you know, that inside of community or inside of study, a variety of ways down through history this has happened, but we've always known that you have to go from the essential scriptural truths into then what that actually means and how do we formulate what are those absolutes inside of my life. The things that 90% of Christians across the world, across the centuries would agree upon as being absolute and as being foundational. The next level up from there then is kind of the renewing of your mind that Romans chapter 12, 1 and 2 talk about. That if, if the foundation of scripture and those core theological truths then from there, our thinking gets shifted. The way in which we perceive life gets transformed. The way we view what success looks like or what goodness looks like or where we are heading with our lives or, or how we should live or how we should act begins to change from the inside out. There's a renewal that takes place, a remaking, a reworking, a reforming inside of how we see everything, not just Who God is, but what life looks like. And then you get to the very like uh, final level, which is what you actually do. How we act, you know, the things that we do, the things that we don't do, the things that we say, the things that we don't say, the things that we want to give our lives to, you know, at the very behavioral level. Sometimes, again, we can run the risk of thinking, if I just read my Bible, I'll act correctly. And that, that's pretty good advice. If somebody said, if you just read your Bible, you'll act correctly, and that's true, but only when we do some of the hard work individually and in community in these other layers. To be able to wrestle through, to think through, to articulate what exactly does the truth of Scripture mean for me in terms of where I live. All that to say this, where we want to go for this series is right here in box number three. What are some of those larger level principles inside of life, arenas inside of life, some of those main headings that it's important that we get right. And whether you are outside of the Christian faith and you're looking in and you're somewhat skeptical or maybe you're on your, you got one foot out the door because you've had, you know, just enough of church, but you're thinking, you know, it doesn't really make a difference. It is important even whether you are inside or outside that we think through this level of what governs and guides our lives. If you're a new Christian, it becomes even more important that we build the right things, you know, and that we do some of the hard work to think through how it is that we are going to live and relate to this world. And then I want to say, especially even if you are a seasoned Christian, life looks different in your 60s than it did in your 40s. Life looks different in your 30s than it did in your teens. And so I think the ongoing work of transformation inside the life of the believer Continues to happen at this level. Scripture doesn't change. The core truths of the gospel don't change. But in order for my life to continue to look like his, we have to do the hard work, I think, in this layer. And by hard work, I'm not saying that somehow you have to earn, you know, the gospel's influence in your life. But the hard work means to be willing to be honest with ourselves and to think through what governs my life. What determines Let me just give you a few of the categories that we're going through over the next few weeks. What determines how I use my time? What determines and shapes how I view my stuff? How do I think about, you know, what it means to develop a resilience and a tenacity and yet at the same time a tenderness and a humility towards the gospel? How do I shape the right priorities that the things that should be on the top of the list remain on the top of the list? How do I build healthy habits and continue to build healthy habits and disciplines inside of my life? That's the level that we wanna talk on for these weeks. These are not new topics. In fact, anything we talk about may not even be new material. But I think, again, whether you are a seasoned believer or whether you are a skeptic or not sure whether you're in or out, it is important that we think about these things because it determines then what you will do and not do, how you will live your life, the things that govern the most important things about who you are. I'm excited about this because I think it's something that we, we all need and we all need routinely inside of our lives. Particularly now, we've been in a year of disruption. And I think as we come through this year where everything has been disrupt- disrupted and routines have been set aside and sometimes socially we haven't seen some of the people who are close to us, there may be economic fallout, there may, you may have been sick or not sick, you may have lost someone or not lost somebody. As we think through what it means to come through a year where uh, politics have risen to, to center stage and have consumed... Uh, so much of our time and our thinking and our energy. We think of things going on inside of our world. It is important that we are people who think Christianly and who take the time to work through some of these things inside of our lives. And so today I want to talk to you a little bit about change. The first layer I want us to think about in terms of what it means to think Christianly, for God to continue to, to reform and remake and to reshape my life as I find my way through whatever's next, and my life is different than yours, and my routines are different than yours, and personality and everything else inside of all of our differences, none of us like change. Now, if truth be told, we are all grateful for positive change. None of us want to stay in the same spot. Nobody, none of us want to be stuck in a rut. None of us want to feel like we are trapped inside of the existence that we're currently living in. But at the same time, none of us like when things change. We like our routine, we like what's predictable, we like what's comfortable. We know that change is inevitable, but we sometimes still resist it. What does it look like that our faith in the core truth of the gospel would shape even how I view this thing called life that is constantly, seemingly in flux? One of the, the first places I begin to think about Uh, in regard to this is the book of Ecclesiastes. You know, that there's a time, you know, for everything, there's a time to to mourn, there's a time to weep, there's a time to dance, you know, that whole thing. And it goes through that inside of these seasons, he's made all things beautiful in his time. And life is comprised of seasons. And as one season comes to an end, another season begins. And and sometimes there's a season that we thought would be longer, that is cut short. And sometimes there's one that we wish would end that continues to go on. But inside of this thing called life, there are these seasons. In thinking about change, I tried to think of, of where else to go from there. And I thought that almost every book of the Bible was either written about or for a season of change. Think of your entire New Testament. There is so much you know, that is rapidly changing and you know, the Christian church as it's forming and letters that are written to either combat problems or to shape people's understanding and their theology. The Old Testament, that they're either in bondage or wandering through the promised land or uh, learning how to be a people in a kingdom or learning how to be exiles. There's always something that is new and emerging that disrupts the current routine. And it's in the middle of that that God does some of his best teaching. But where I want to turn your attention today is in the New Testament in the book of James. We don't think of James necessarily as a book about any particular people or context. And in fact, it's called one of the general epistles. And general is we're going to read in the first uh, verse that it's written to a wide audience. But pay attention to what would normally be something we would skip over just in the introduction of who James is written to. So the book of James chapter one, beginning with the first verse. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes scattered among the nations, greetings. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. And let perseverance finish its work so that, that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously should take pride in their humiliation since they will pass away like a wild flower. For the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant. Its blossoms fall and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way the rich will fade away even while they go about their business. Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. And so the book of James begins, and it's written to a general audience, but he says to the 12 tribes who are scattered throughout uh, the whole Near Eastern world. And the context here, this is James, not James, the brother of John, one of the disciples. Uh, he passes away. He, he is killed early inside of the book of Acts. But this is James, the half-brother of Jesus, who becomes the leader of the Jerusalem church. And James is writing... Uh, You know, some you know, decade or two after these events, as a persecution breaks that breaks out. Maybe it's after Stephen's martyrdom, when we know that the church that there's a scattering. Maybe it's later in Acts chapter eleven. There's another scattering, but we know that uh, this early church that is largely Jewish. Inside of Jerusalem, at you know the feast of of Pentecost, when the church is birthed, it is mostly Jewish believers who are there who Uh, accept the the gospel, who become Christians, most of the early Christians were Jewish. And so a persecution breaks out and they are are spread out. Now they know, at least from their nation's history, all about this, because at times uh, their people, their ancestors were exiled to foreign lands. And so once again, because they put their faith in Jesus, they are spread throughout the Near Eastern world. And so they lose family and homes and towns and friendships. And they find themselves in a place that is perhaps completely unfamiliar or at least somewhat unfamiliar. It's to that context that James, and James as as he puts pen to paper, and maybe there's a scribe that makes another copy and another copy. And it gets sent out across the church. This is James is opening statement to them, consider it pure joy. Consider it pure joy. Everything that you rested on as being familiar and comfortable is gone, but I want you to consider it joy. It's a verse that's difficult, and some people have tried to explain it away as far as what that means, that somehow it's Pollyanna pie in the sky, that you should always just put a smile on your face and say, You know, God is good all the time, and all the time God is good, and so whatever is going on right now, however awful it may be, God wants me to put a smile on my face, because after all, I'm going to be with him for eternity. But you know, and I know, that it goes deeper than that. That what James means here when he says, consider it pure joy, is that inside of your circumstances, though they not be what you would want them to be, that we can choose joy in any situation. Joy is recognizing the presence of God that's at work. Joy isn't necessarily happiness, but joy is recognizing uh, that wherever I am, God is here. Joy is choosing to recognize that whatever is going on currently is temporary, but the truth and the reality of who God is is a permanent fixture that shapes my life. Joy is experiencing the nearness of God and the reality that we we don't know what the next chapter is, but we know how the story ends. And so I think it's fitting that James, who would go on and talk about that faith without works is dead, James, who would go on to, to give you know, practical information about taming the tongue. And you know, James has been called kind of the the proverbs of the New Testament. That you can almost just flip to any verse in the book or any uh, chapter and verse in the book of James and walk away with something that you could take with you. But he begins to a group of people who are scattered, who are in an undesirable situation in life, and he says, I want you to begin by choosing joy right here and right now. Not happiness, not satisfaction, but joy. Because you know the author of life, you know the finisher of life, and you know the one who has promised to be with you in everything in between the beginning and the end. I think one of the ways that we navigate change is not by just grinning and bearing it, but it is maintaining the perspective that we know the one who begins it, we know the one who ends it, and the one who has promised to be with us wherever we find ourselves in between on the journey. But he goes on after saying, you know, consider it pure joy, and he says this, uh, know that your perseverance You're keeping on, keeping on, putting one step in front of the other, continuing to walk forward even when you don't have the answers. Your perseverance is going to produce something inside of your life that leads to maturity and that leads to completeness. You see, what you are going through right now is going to lead towards something far deeper and far better. And whether that is tangibly better, whether that's materially better or not, we don't know, but but God is producing something inside of you. And so we know that times of change inside of our lives tend to expand our faith and deepen our devotion. Not necessarily, because you know people and I know people, that two people can experience the same life event, and one, it leads them deeper in their faith, and one, it causes them to have doubts or to walk away from their faith. But I think when you choose joy inside of a situation and to see the hand of God that's at work at the beginning and at the end and everywhere in between, it makes it possible then to embrace change not as something we like or want, but as something that God is going to meet us in and do something in the midst of. So James says, consider it joy, knowing that the perseverance is going to, Produce something that's going to lead towards your completeness and your maturity. And then he goes on and he says, "I want you to ask for wisdom, but not ask for wisdom in some casual way uh, that almost is like a wave that that's you know tossed to and fro on the ocean. I want you to ask for wisdom, believing actually that God will give it. And here's what what I think he means. There is our tendency when we get in, inside of a time of difficulty or adversity or a time where things are just shifting or we don't know up from down, our prayers tend to be, God, will you get me out of the storm? God, will you shorten the length of the storm? God, will you send me a bigger boat in order to get through the storm? And Instead, I think what James wants to say is when you consider it all joy and when you, when you continue to persevere knowing that God is producing something in you, Your prayer is, God, what do you want to teach me in the middle of the storm? That it's possible to seek the voice of God and the will of God in the middle of times of uncertainty, in the middle of times of difficulty, in the not-so-good times of life. And then the final thing he says, and it's that verse about You know, those who are in lowly positions, you know, take courage in how high of a position you have. And those who are rich, you know, you know, rejoice in your humiliation. And I think what he's saying there there is uh, what pain does, what uncertainty does, what times of change uh, do inside of our lives is it levels the playing field. Because regardless of the amount that is in your bank account, we all feel pain the same way. Pain is not quiet. Pain is not subtle. When pain happens, you know that it happens. And especially for this group of people, as they are, you know, kind of sent sent across into towns that they don't know, at at that point, you know, the, the material situation that you have in life might affect a little bit of how you land or where you land, but no one would choose or nobody has the ability to control where they end up. And so it's something about life that it has the ability even to, to flatten the best of us. Or however strong we thought we were inside of a situation, all of a sudden something, something comes along and the things that we thought we knew, we don't quite know as much. And James wants to say, you know, as you consider it all joy and as you continue to persevere and as you continue to seek wisdom, make sure that you don't confuse your earthly standing with your heavenly identity. Make sure that you don't confuse where you are now with who you are in Christ. So none of us really like change. We can look over our shoulder and see God's faithfulness and see the things that God has done. We can look inside of a time where we felt like we were walking through a valley and to know that God was there and God met us, but it doesn't necessarily mean we welcome the next time of adversity or time of change inside of our lives there was a guy at, at, at Sharptown that came up to me when I, I had been there uh, just about two years and he came up and, and he actually meant, meant it as a compliment but as I'll uh, explain here in a couple of minutes it didn't hit me the same but he said uh, I just want you to know that I've been praying for you and I'm deeply appreciative of the way your faith has carried you, you through the past couple of years and uh He went on to say that he had read an article that talked about life-stressing events. And this article actually placed a numerical value, one to ten, on the top 25 life-stressing events that could take place in a person's life. And he said, Mike, as I was reading this, you came to mind because you had about six or seven of these on there in the past year and a half. And he went on to list them. And so let me just list them for you. And and I've mentioned many of these things kind of... uh, you know, on their own, but let me just kind of put them together, that the, time lo- the timeline of my life from, say, uh, the middle of O two to the middle of O four, And by the way, this is not for a pity party, this is, as you'll see in a moment, you know, the illustration that comes out of it. So in uh, the middle of 2002, Rachel and I uh, accepted a position uh, to return back to Sharptown later that year and uh, to enter full-time ministry there. Now this had been our plan, we were in Kentucky but we knew eventually we were heading back to New Jersey but it still did not make it any easier to say goodbye to friendships and to begin to transition. And so that was the first thing really that kicked off um, you know about midway through the spring in 02. When we got to the summer of 2002, I got a call from my dad who said that my mom who had been receiving Uh, treatment for cancer that they said that there was nothing more that they could do and they were placing her under hospice care. We were still a couple of months from returning back to New Jersey but knew that that was uh, the situation uh, for her life. In August of 2002 we welcomed baby number one who if you want a new name to call Caleb you can forever on now just call him baby number one. Um, You know baby number one inside of our life came in August and while that was a uh, hugely exciting thing for us. Those of you who have had kids know that a child can change your life, can add some level of, of complexity and change to how you relate and uh, your you know, daily and weekly and uh, yearly behaviors and, and the cal- calendar there. And so Caleb was born in August. In October, we moved to New Jersey. And so, again, that was, there was something exciting about, about that. There was also the saying goodbye in Kentucky, the newness, Stepping into full-time ministry, a new baby at home, it was, again, just added a level of stress to our lives. In December of that year, December of 2002, my mom passed away. And I've I've told you that story before, but after being on hospice for about four months, uh, four or five months, uh, she lost her battle with cancer. Over the course of the next year, in uh, 2003, we continued just to deal with the reality of of being in full-time ministry and having a baby and having lost my mom. On the first day of hunting season in December of 2003, my dad had a heart attack and passed away, uh, just under a year after my mom had passed. Which meant then in 2004, my two brothers and I uh, began to work through an estate and sell a house. And many of you have dealt with that where you know that even in the most harmonious of situations, there is tension sometimes that comes with working through an estate because brother A might process grief differently than brother B, and brother C might not be trying to process it at all, and and in the midst of that, you're dealing with these personalities who are grieving and yet making business decisions through it all. Inside of 2004, we also decided to build a house, and we also welcomed baby number two, which is your new name that you can refer to Eli as. Uh, Baby number two came in June. So this guy came up and he meant it as a compliment, but he said, Um, I've been praying for you because I saw a number of things on this list of what your past year and a half to two years has looked like and those life-stressing events, and um, I want to commend you on your faith through it all. What he meant as a compliment hit me as a punch in the gut. Because I think up until that point, I was kind of just going through, not really going through the motions, but just trying to do the next thing that was in front of me. And I think when, you know, there's the excitement of a new job, you move forward in the middle of that. When there's the excitement of a new child, there's, there's diapers to be changed, and there's, you know, times when you get up, and there's, you know, the, the good moments and the hard moments, and you just deal with it. When your mom passes away, you deal with the grief, and you find yourself, you know, in a, in a viewing line or at a graveside. And then you continue just to process it, and you move on to the next thing. And as this guy spoke, and again, what he meant very you know, tenderly and compassionately, hit me again like a ton of bricks. And what happened over the next couple of months, I think in the early part of 2005, is for me to begin to process through collectively what I had just walked through step by step. And I know that God led me through every one of those events that had taken place. I know that God met me inside of every one of those events that had taken place, but I never stepped back to actually take the time to work through the difficulty, the stress, the enormity of what was taking place inside of my life. We are all resistant to change, and yet we all know that change takes place. We know that we grow through adversity, and yet none of us would choose adversity to walk through. But I think one of the building blocks of faith for us is to realize that, that again, if we know the one who is the author, and we know the one who is the finisher, and the one who has promised to be with us every step of the way, along the way, there could be joy, there could be wisdom, there could be perseverance, there could be all those things that, that James packages together. But we can't neglect the fact that God wants to meet us and to do a healing work in the middle of the stuff, the junk of life. So I don't know if you are in the middle of a storm, coming out of a storm, or preparing for the next storm. But the one thing I know about life is that, the one thing you can count on is that, the storms will come. The change does happen. Things don't stay stay the same, and let's face it, we don't want things to stay the same. I think one of the marks of discipleship is that we learn not just how to transition easily, but how to rely on God when the sand is shifting beneath our feet. A couple of things I learned in 2005, and again, there's nothing earth-shattering about this, but I just want to quickly just wrap up where we are. The first is that I actually had to name out, and this guy again, who thought he was being you know, compassionate by doing this, helped me get a jump start on this, because everything he said just almost was taking the wind out of me, even though he was meaning it as, as a compliment, uh, but to actually like call out the things that are taking place. We tend to think, if I really love God, then all this stuff shouldn't matter. If I really trust God, then it's okay, and God's going to meet me here, and it's okay, and I don't have to think about it. There's something powerful that comes when you actually acknowledge what is taking place and sometimes even acknowledge that this is not right or not fair before God. The second thing I learned is I don't want to make permanent decisions because of temporary situations. I don't want to be reactionary. I don't want to allow the pain that speaks loudly today to cause me to do something stupid tomorrow. Now, luckily, from what I could tell, and maybe you could ask Rachel for a better audit of this afterwards, in between the middle of 2002 and the middle of 2004, I don't think I did anything stupid. But what I learned was that there was something that there's a tendency that when things are shifting, we tend to think, did I do something wrong? Or, you know, does does God not like me? Or what's happening? Or, you know, whose fault is it? Or who can I blame? And we tend to want to react because of what we're walking through. The third thing is to prioritize your faith. And again, that seems like such an obvious, cliche-type type statement, but let me give you another image for that. I had to dig the well deeper. You see, I don't know that I ever said this, but from meeting Christ in 1992 to finishing seminary in 2002, the tendency might have think that, would have been to think that that was the 10 years that prepared me for the rest of my life. But in to, 2005, after life hit me with a series of shots, some great, some not so good, and some terrible, I found that the faith that I was relying on had to go deeper and that God wanted to take me deeper if I would dig the well a little bit deeper. Now, I wish I could tell you that from that I started to fast, you know, three days a week and all these other things. Obviously, you would not believe that. Um, I think what I did was I lengthened my prayer time and I started to write down a few things as they came to me. I had been, you know, reading scripture and, you know, there were a few things that I continued to do. There were were just a couple of small things, but I knew that the faith that had got me to that point, that God wanted to take me deeper in him. The last thing I'll say is this, that that sometimes what pain does is kind of cause us to kind of recoil against. And just as we become reactionary, we also sometimes want to take our stand and put our stake in the ground. And to just say to be careful... To at least ask the question Am I standing up for a core scriptural truth? Or am I just mad and upset and want things to stay the same? Sometimes the righteous indignation that wants to rise up within you is not righteous at all, but it's just out of fear trying to hold on to what's shifting and changing around you. So let me ask you Are you in the middle of a storm? coming out of a storm, or preparing for the next storm, because it's one of the three. The one thing we know is that the storms will come, that life doesn't stay the same, and that sometimes it becomes so easy, do we follow God because he gives us a wonderful, great, enjoyable life, or do we follow him because of who he is, knowing that he's the author, he's the finisher, and he's with us every step in between. Let's pray. Let me invite you inside of this moment. Are you in the middle of the storm, coming out of a storm, or preparing for the next storm? Is there change inside of your life right now? Even as we come through a year that's had tremendous change and transition and difficulty, what has 2020 done to your faith? Do you find yourself seeking the wisdom of God of what he's trying to do and the doors he's trying to open or more shaking your fist at the sky? In the midst of what we've lost or what we've missed, does it expand your heart for the things of God or does it almost serve as like a speed bump inside of your life? the one thing we can count on is that things continue to change. God has promised to meet us there in the middle of it all. And so whatever way and whatever circumstances are on the forefront of your mind, would you just offer those to him this morning? The feelings they conjure up, the emotions maybe that you've held down, or even maybe the thoughts about him and his goodness that they've produced. And Father, I pray that you would meet us uh, exactly right where we are. And Father, I would pray that you would give us a faith that is not so much reliant on the circumstances you produce inside of our lives, but is more reliant on the personhood of who you are and who you want to be inside of our lives. God, in the middle of all that, I ask that you would speak deeply, uh, draw near to us this day. We thank you for your desire to do that. We thank you for the pattern inside of Scripture that where people were lost or, or hurting or in transition, that you were there, clear, and visible, and tangible, and we would ask that you would do that even for us. We ask and pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.